So if you were invited this morning to measure your hope, number zero being hopeless, number ten being right on top of the world with your feet dangling, where would you find yourself? Think about that number. Don't show it to me. It's okay. You got the number? I can wait. I've got nothing else to do. (laughs) If you're like so many, you will have based the number that you have in your mind on your present situation. But that's not the definition of hope. Hope is not based upon what is. Hope is based upon what is to be. And many of us, I'm afraid, allow our hope to be marooned in our situation. In fact, um, we squeeze our hope into the size of our present circumstances. That's why so many people in God's family are without hope, or their hope is severely distressed. Um, I want to take a look this morning at the book of Zechariah as we begin our series. And um, we already have looked at chapter 1, in case you've forgotten, way back in the spring. Some have been asking, why are we starting in chapter 2? Well, because we did chapter 1. So we got chapter 2, and we're, we're going to look at a series for the next 13 weeks, Lord willing, on The King is Coming. It's a story of hope. The prophecy of Zechariah is a story of hope. We need to uh, remember or, or rehearse a little background truth. And that, the simple fact is that Israel had been in exile for about 70 years there, or, or give or take. And Zechariah the prophet comes along because the the people of God have lost their hope. The hopes of of national recovery, the the hopes of uh, of the tribes coming back together, reunification of of the north and the south have have pretty much diminished. And, And now they're down virtually to the last David's Zerubbabel. Where are the promises of God? And so their hope had, had faded, and God sent Zechariah to be the messenger of God's hope. So you may find yourself this morning, as we so regularly do, in a very distressing situation. And maybe it's been a prolonged distressing. They were, they were 70 years. Maybe you've been discouraged for a long time. And you came in here this morning and gave yourself a one or a two. Well, God has a really encouraging message for you today. If you can't find Zechariah, it's just a couple of ch- uh, it's one book from the end of the Old Testament. I encourage you to be there. We need to be we need to remember that the Apostle Paul gave a good explanation of hope in Romans eight twenty four when he writes this: "Hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has?" So when you start to press your hope into the size of your present moment or your present situation, it's time for a bigger vision. 
They were in exile to Babylon, then they were in exile to Persia. It just kept coming in waves. And so um, we have this message from Zechariah. And it is important for us to know that in the situation for Israel, the time of, their, of their, this moment for them, really, really, well, there's probably no better word to use than it's, it, it stank. It, it's, it was a stinky time for them. And um, God's plan for us is not that we should be shaped by what is in our lives, but rather what is to be. That's why uh, the Apostle Paul um, described believers in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He talks, talks about them as that's what some of you were. When he, when he looks at the people of God who, who at one point were wandering in their own direction, were wandering away from God, and, and their present situation was what is, he said, that's what some of you were, but that's not who you are. And that's not who you are to be. And so I want you uh, to look in the text today, chapter 2. It's the third vision of, of eight visions that the prophet had, whereby God gives him these um, impressions, uh, visions of what God wants to declare to his people, and then he takes the message to them. So here it is. Uh, then I looked up, and there before me was a man with a measuring line in his hand. I asked where are you going? He answered me, to measure Jerusalem, to find out how wide and long and how long it is. Then the angel who was speaking to me left, and another angel came to meet him and said to him, run, tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of men and livestock in it, and I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord. And I will be its glory within. Come, come, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have scattered you to the four winds of heaven, declares the Lord. Come, O Zion, escape, you who live in the daughter of Babylon. For this is what the Lord Almighty says. After he has honored me and has sent me against the nations that have plundered you. For whoever touches you touches the apple of his eye. I will surely raise my hand against them so that their slaves will plunder them. And then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me. Shout and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for I am coming. And I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. The Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will will again choose Jerusalem. Be still before the Lord, O mankind, because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Well, this is the word of God for us today. One of the first things that we do when um, life is really pressing in upon us is we start to shrink the size of our thinking and start to secure what we have. That's kind of the setting that we find ourselves in here with Israel. I'm going to expand on that in a few moments. But there was, as I was studying this and reading through it, there was right in the center of this prophecy a phrase, a line that encouraged my heart to no end. And I I just want to offer it to you as we start out here this morning. And that's found in verse 8. I want you to notice there. It says, for whoever touches you touches the apple of God his eye. Who's that referring to? It's referring to God. 
And, and who are you? Well, you who know the Lord, the people of God. This is a tremendous declaration of what God thinks of you. Whoever touches you, touches the apple of his eye, or whatever touches you, touches the apple of his eye. Now, I went searching to understand more fully what this really means. And if you were to do a search and, and, and look for it yourselves, you would find that there's probably four or five different meanings. It's one of those ancient idioms, metaphors, ideas that is not necessarily easy to understand in our setting. So I picked the one that I like the best, and that's the one I'm going to share with you, if that's okay. Apparently, uh, in describing the apple of one's eye in the uh, ancient days, the, the apple was the pupil of one's eye. Um, very dark apple, but nevertheless an apple because it's round and it gives the impression that's how they described it. And so the idea was that this is referencing the pupil of God's eye. But there's more to it than that. See, when, um, whenever you uh, draw near to someone who you really love and you look and you gaze into their eyes. Guys, I'm just going to give you a little hint here. Guys, if you gaze into the eyes of your wife, get really close and gaze into her eye, if she is very enthusiastic about you, her pupils will dilate and she will, they, she will have a big apple in her eye. Big pupil. Now, guys, if you stare into your wife's eye at a close proximity and you find that her pupils are very, very pinhole-ish, you ought, to, you ought to get back in your car as fast as you can and go to wherever you were because things are not good. So this picture is, is, is of God's dilated pupil when we draw near to him because of his affection for us. Not only that, but if you've ever got close enough to your, your loved one's dilated pupil, you will see a reflection of yourself in her eye. And this beautiful picture of God's dilated pupil with our image burned on his eye. It's an incredible picture of affection. Whoever touches you, remember this, you are the apple of God's eye. And so he, he, right in the very center of this prophecy, for those who had lost hope, for those who were so discouraged, and because it had been so long since they felt like God loved them, they were under this oppression of Babylon, and, and now Persia's coming, and, and, and how are they to believe that God still loves them? The temple is gone, the city's in ruins, their political system's a, a shambles. It, it was promised to them that Zion would be great, and it's just laid ruins. The walls are down. And the prophet says, no, you are the apple of God's eye. That is a wow thing. So, what is it that we usually do when we get feeling hopeless and 
fearful and all the kinds of things that are going on here in this time with Israel. Here's, here's what we do when our hope is put at risk, usually. They send this kid out from the risk management department with a tape measure. And they ask him to go and measure Jerusalem. And so we're left, well, what in the world is going on here? Where are you going? There's this dialogue between Zechariah and, and, and uh, an angel. And, and he answers to measure Jerusalem to find out how wide and how long it is. And then the, then the angel leaves and another angel shows up and he brings a message from God. And here's the message. Run, tell that young man... Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of men and livestock in it, and I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. Now, we're left here trying to understand what's going on. Why was there a guy going out to measure Jerusalem, and why is there another angel that's sent, and why is there a new message about Jerusalem and its size and all of this? So we're left to, to try and figure out what is going on in this particular vision. The only thing that I, as I, as I look at this, and, and I think you will see this yourself, that, that one of the things that happens to us when, we, when, when we, we lose hope is we start to think about securing what's left. We start to bring everything in and make life small around us. We, we, we decide that we better protect and take care of the meager things that we still have left. And so it would appear that this guy is, is sent out to measure the city of Jerusalem. And we can only infer by what God says here that he's going to measure this, the size of the city of Jerusalem because they, he's going to find out how many building materials they need, what kind of, how many stones they need, what kind of lumber they need to build a wall around Jerusalem to start to re-protect or protect what the meager thing they have. And God's like, stop, Wait. You guys are thinking too small. That's, that's automatically what we do. When, when hope sags in our lives, the first things that we start to do is start to think really small. We start to get security conscious. We think small. We start to play it safe. And these are usually not God's ideas. They're ours. God wants us to think big and bold. Measuring the dimensions of the wall to set the boundaries of the present sight lines. And what were the present sight lines? Well, Jerusalem was the, the homes. There were a few meager homes, a remnant of homes that had been destroyed. The temple was destroyed. The wall had been destroyed. In fact, if you want to read about this time, Ezra and Nehemiah's, uh, it was closing in on that time. And God comes through with this prophecy and states, Jerusalem will be a city without walls. Because the great number of men and livestock in it. I wonder about you today. I wonder if that's how you find yourself. It's been a long time since you felt encouraged. And so you've become really security conscious. You've started to, to put all kinds of your own strength, security things around your life, propping up what you have, making sure that you don't lose the little bit you still have left. And you're trying to do it in your own strength. 
We think too small. The message of God is there's room in God's house. You know, when God made the earth, he put two people in it. Now there's seven and a half billion people. There's still plenty of room. When God builds things, he, he builds big. He, he builds on the basis of his vision, not the meager vision of, uh, of those who are disappointed and discouraged and jaded, but rather God is a God of, uh, of, of the big and a God of, of great vision and grand abilities, and there's nothing impossible with God. A number of years ago, um, my son Graydon was an intern with us here. Many of you will remember that. An intern in, the, uh, uh, in, in campus ministries. And uh, we had just, we'd just begun that kind of ministry and getting things rolling and everything. He came to me one day and he says, um, I, I'd like to have a debate on campus. Most of you remember this. A debate on campus under the title of, Does God Exist? Remember that? Remember that? Many of you were here would remember that. He says, oh. So I said, oh, okay, that sounds good. We'll talk to the team about it, and we'll, we'll talk to you, get back to you and everything. I said, so what are you going to do, like book a, a, a classroom or something like that? He says, no, 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 I, no. I, I'm actually booking the, the gym, like the biggest space they have there. And I said, I said well, is this your first thing you're doing? He said, yeah. I said, well, maybe, maybe you ought to start just a little smaller. I said, like, like, why don't you try and fill up a room before you try and fill up the biggest space they have? And he says, well... He says, um, well, no, I, I'm going to need that space. I'm going to need that big room. And I said, I was thinking, Lord, break it to him gently. He says, <laughs> he's so young and he hasn't, hasn't had many failures in life. And so I said to him, I, I don't think that's a really good idea. So I said, I'll, I'll tell you what. Okay, okay, if you're insisting on having the room, I said, why don't you set up like maybe 100 chairs, 150 chairs, and, and, you know, if, if more people come in, then you can always put, like, more chairs out because it's always better to, like, look like it's full and you got what you were thinking of than to have a real big disappointment. So he says to me, no, I'm going to set the whole place up with chairs. I said, well, what does it see? He said, oh, about 1,500. I said, 1,500 people. You think that 1,500 people in a midweek are going to come out? And it, Yeah, that's what I, I, I think. So I said, oh, okay. So, uh... He, as we all know, he went ahead with that, and, and so I got there reasonably early, and Lynn and I took our, took our places up in the bleachers of the, of the gym at UOIT, and, and I'm sitting there, uh, and I keep looking at Lynn as people keep pouring into this place, They're just pouring in, pouring in, pouring in. It wasn't long before my son, Graydon, took great delight <laughs> in walking up the bleachers to where I was and whispering to me this. Dad, could you go to the overflow room with mom, please? Because, because we need this space for people who don't know the Lord. And uh, would you mind leaving the room? So I was like... Outfaithed by my son. It was a shameful moment. But it is, it is what we do regularly. We built this church too small. That's why we have two services. We always build churches too small. God is about 
his glory and about demonstrating his glory. And he says to them, I myself will be a wall of fire around you. You think that, that stones and, and, and timber and, and piles of dirt is, what you, is, is your security? Seriously. I'm your security. You can put up all the walls you like, but ultimately I'm your security. I'll put up a wall of fire that your enemy will see. And by the way, if you think you can build a wall around the size of Jerusalem the way it is right now with a temple sacked and the homes, meager homes and the ruined marketplace, my city will be a city without walls because of the great number of men and livestock in it. Your sight lines are too small. You know... Um, Sometimes our precautions can easily become presumptions. There's nothing wrong with common sense. There's nothing wrong with, with being careful about what we do. But sometimes our common sense and our human reasoning, protecting what is, makes us ineligible for what God has, what is to be, makes us unready makes us unhopeful. What is to be, God speaks here, is, is people down at the bottom of the chapter, people coming from every nation. Uh, my Zion, my picture of Jerusalem, God says, is, is many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day. We've become my people. I'll live among them. And I will be its glory within. You see... Um, God had left the building. God had walked out. If you turn back in Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 11, 38 or 23, you'll find out that, that there God had walked out of the temple through the east gate. His presence had left because of their unfaithfulness. I mean, at, I mean, as they were wondering, what in the world is God doing with us? Why are we in this terrible situation of being uh, uh, under occupation of Babylon and now Persia? God had warned them over the years, prophet upon prophet, God had warned them, listen, you are you, the, the object of your affections is no longer me. It's the temple. It's your nationality. It's your rituals and religion. You have allowed those things to become idols whereby you think you're in right space with me because you are interested in the temple and because you are participating in the rich religion and rituals and because of your nationality as Jews, as Israel. Over and over again he appealed to them, but they wouldn't return to a relationship with him. They had made idols and were disobedient to him. And the reason they were in this funk of occupation by Babylon and Persia is because of the very things, the temple, the, those trappings of, uh, uh, that they were trusting in, walls and other things instead of God. And so here they are in this moment of collapsed hope. Not because the promises of God had disappeared, they still stood, but to call on them to stop gazing at what is and put their eyes on what is to be as promised by the Lord. 
And until they would, his glory left. And when the glory of God leaves, the situation is dire. So God had left, but he had left recorded promises to them by the prophet Ezekiel, by Isaiah, by Jeremiah. They had promised that Jerusalem in Ezekiel 38, 11 would be a city without walls. The promise of God in Isaiah 49, verses 19 to 20, is that Jerusalem would be a place, that, that Jerusalem, the present Jerusalem, was too small for all that God was intending to do. And Jeremiah said that God would add to the numbers. And here we are today. Isn't it a marvelous thing? God has continued to grow his people all over the world. And these promises of God, trusting them. So they had become secure in their building, in their nationality, in their religious attendance. And brothers and sisters, it is so easy for us to fall into that same trap. It is really easy for us to start to rely on our heritage as raised in a Christian family, our attendance at church, our practices of our religion, our coming here and singing the songs of the faith. And we find out that our heart is far from God in truth. And when we're asked to measure our hope we put down a really small number. Sometimes God allows us to be in a really distressing situation over an extended period of time to regain our attention so we can feel how bad it is to not be enjoying the sweet presence of God in His closeness. And by the way, that's why when our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, got onto a colt and rode down from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem, he rode in the eastern gate called the Beautiful Gate because the glory of the Lord had left Jerusalem. And now the glory of the promised Messiah, the glory of God, was returning to Jerusalem Tragically, the Jews rejected their Messiah. The king is coming. And when he comes again, he will come in through the eastern gate. He will come to the Mount of Olives and come in through the eastern gate. The glory of God will return to Jerusalem as is promised here. So don't think small. That's the future picture. But there's another thing here. So the promises of God should buoy our hope. We are not people who are encouraged by what is. Our situation is rarely that encouraging. We are people who are encouraged every day by what is to be. So my sister down here to my left put up a 10 for her hope. We all should be a 10. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, your present situation is not your future. 
Our present situation, whether it's a health crisis, whether it's an economic crisis, whether it's a relational crisis, whether it, whatever crisis you find yourself in, however discouraged you find yourself, you need to remember that Christ has promised you great things. And so our hope, as we sung this morning, is in the living Christ. And we will rejoice in Him. But there's another point that's made here. In verse 6, notice it says, come out. Come, come, flee from the land of the north. You've been scattered by Babylon all over the place. Your, your houses lay in ruins in Jerusalem. You're discouraged. The temple isn't built. The walls are down. Come back. Flee from, the, the, flee from your um, diaspora that you've been scattered throughout the, uh, the, the Babylon dominion. For I've scattered you to the four winds of heaven, declares the Lord. Come, O Zion, escape you who live in the daughter of Babylon. For this is what the Lord Almighty says. Come back. Now, we, we, need to, we need to grab for a moment the emotional context of Israel all over again. Here is the prophet telling them they should be excited about the way things are. If you know anything about the history of the time, Babylon had succumbed to Persia. Now, that was a political stunner. Nobody saw that coming. Uh, Babylon was mighty and powerful, and it dominated the world, that part of the ancient Near East. And all of a sudden, this upstart nation comes in called Persia. How are we to be happy about that, Lord? Why should we be excited about that? We go from one occupation to another occupation. We're handed around like cheap goods. How are we the apple of your eye? Well, here's the, here's the cool stuff that God is working on behind the scenes that often we don't notice at the time, but, but we sure can notice it here. See, Babylon had a style when they occupied or dominated a nation or a people group. Their idea of, of their, their political idea was to scatter the people all over the place, to chase them out of their homeland and scatter them so that they couldn't be together and amass a rebellion and not only that, but Babylon had a one religion style. If you were under the captivity of Babylon, you bowed to their gods or you died. Here's the good news. Persia comes in, takes over the whole thing. And Persia has an entirely different political style. Their idea, if you read the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, their idea was repatriation. They believed that if they would bring the peoples of the scattered nations back to their nation, that it made good economic sense because the people would be, they would look at their land and they would rebuild it because they would be loyal to their, their land. And not only that, they had a religious pluralistic position. They believed that people would be better subjects if they were allowed to worship their own gods. So here the God of the universe lifts his baby finger and changes entire political situations in favor of his people so that the starting process of preparing for Messiah could get rolling again. Let's build the temple. Let's get the walls up. Let's get the glory of God back. Let's get God's people back enthusiastic and excited about the living God all over again. Although they were in occupation, in exile, they were able to worship their God. It's amazing stuff you read in Nehemiah. Whether it's Cyrus or Darius or Xerxes or Artaxerxes I, and on and on it goes as, they, as the various leaders were dominating 
Each of them gave Israel free reign to redevelop. So what do we discover here? Not only for them, but for us. That the power of God makes a way for you and I to, be com to completely break free of our captivity. Although we live in occupation and exile, Canada is not a gospel land. Canada is not led by gospel leadership. So we're under occupation. We're under exile. We formerly were captives in our sin. And this is the urgency of God to us. Come, come out of that captivity. My power is enabling you to set, is, is setting you free. Jesus Christ came to set the captives free. Christ came to set us free from those sins that have buried us and kept us in guilt and ruined our lives. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Are we free indeed? They were still staying there. They were still holding on to the vestiges of captivity. And, and you'll see that there's two words here, flee and then escape, verse 7. Escape. Stop living as if you are under captivity. Christ has set you free from your sins, those besetting sins. What is the possibilities in your life that may have held you captive even yet, though Christ has set you free? Well, it has to do with this escape. Don't stay in Babylon. Get to Jerusalem. Now, that was their case. We're not talking about geography here this morning. We're talking about our hearts. See, too many of us keep our hearts in Babylon, even though Jesus has set us free. Our hearts are supposed to go to Jerusalem. What's that, what's that mean? If these people stayed scattered, there was a danger of them integrating economically, culturally, morally with the people around them who they were closest to. The need was to come out from them, the same message in the New Testament, come out from those and worship the living God. See, too many of us are wondering why we haven't been able to see victory in our sinful lives, but we still go to the same places we ever went. We still hang around with the same people we used to hang around with. We, we still watch the same things we used to watch. We still turn on our computer the same as we ever did, and we're, we're, we're reading the same books we used to read, and we're wondering why we can't break free of sin. The message of God is escape. I've set you free. I have given you the power to break free from your sinful lives. But you must leave the proximity of those things that drag you back into sin. That was the grand message of them. Go back to Jerusalem. Reignite your passion for the Lord. Get away from the culture that, that, is, that is holding you hostage to other belief systems. And so it is for us. If redemption has come to you, if the salvation of Christ has come to you, break free. But you must get away from all your former ways and all your former places. There's a final beautiful picture here in verse 10. There's a message that God sends to them and to us. Shout and be glad. 
O daughter of Zion. You have been rescued from being the daughter of Babylon, metaphorically. When you were held captive by your sins before you knew Jesus Christ, you were a daughter of Babylon. But once you have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, he set you free. You're now a daughter of Zion. And Zion is the picture of the city of God. Now, shout and be glad, for I am coming and I will live among you. You see all of this? The difference between what is and what is to be? That message over and over again, the message of hope is... Don't keep looking at what is. Look at what is to be. I have promised this to you. Nations will be joined with the Lord in that day. Out of every tribe, out of every tongue, out of every race, will be gathered to Zion, the great city of God. So stand, shout, and be glad now. This is a message of the presence of God. Live it up in the presence of God. Give evidence again. The living God wants Jerusalem once again to be the center of the praise of God, where praise is offered to the true God of the universe. That's the point of, of our gathering as a church congregation. We become little centers of Zion all over the world. And it has nothing to do with the geopolitical situation because it doesn't matter where you live. You come together and all over the world today, all all over the world, there are God's people doing just this, shouting and being glad because they are recognizing that Jesus Christ is truly the king. We're not looking at what is. We're looking at what is to be. Christ is truly our king. Christ is coming for us. Christ is liberating us from sin. Christ is enabling us to worship him. The presence of God is among us. We are the apple of his eye. If God is for us, who can be against us? So we come together and we shout and we rejoice and we're glad. When you came in here this morning, that's what we gather together to do is to sing praises to God, to shout and to encourage each other so that when our hope is bottomed out because we've been staring at what is all week long, we come here and we look at each other and we say, yeah, but what is to be is grander by far than what is. And so we can stand with each other and shout and rejoice. It's critical for you on any given Sunday morning to to reject The enemy who will say to you, why don't you just stay home today? You're discouraged. It was a horrible week. God doesn't care about you. God doesn't love you. If he loved you, things would be better for you. Don't listen to that message. That message will take you down. You get up, you come here anyway, and you shout and be glad because the presence of God will encourage you. You know, if you you feel a little bit sick to your stomach and you say, oh, I don't feel so good today. Listen, get a bag and come to church. It's okay. (laughs) I mean, you get on a plane and they got bags there for you for just that purpose. Well... It's no problem. You come here. Don't ever allow the enemy to keep you home. That weekly thing, man, we need to come together and encourage each other. The presence of the Lord is our strength. The the salvation uh, of of Christ is our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. How are we doing in the shouting and being glad thing? Eh, We're doing all right. We're doing pretty good. But we could do better. We, We should do better. Think about it. Beloved. King Jesus is our king. You know, 
Stop looking at politics and Canada and the United States and all that stuff. That will just take you down and discourage you. When you start to talk about what's my hope, when you start looking at politics and everything else, your hope just sinks, sinks, sinks. But when you think about that's what is. That's not where you go to find hope. Hope is what is to be. And Jesus Christ has promised to come and get us and to take us to be with him forever. And in the meantime, he sets us free from captivity Captivity to sin. But there's one last thing. You see what it says here? Verse 13, be still before the Lord. We should shout and be glad, but we need to leave space as well to be still. And sit in awe and reverence of God. To take into account all that even we've heard this morning about being the apple of God's eye. And sometimes we should shout about that, but sometimes we should just be still and quiet. Sometimes our hope is gone because we're just, it's so frenetic. We're so busy and stuff is all around us. Sometimes, you know what? We just need to get away and be still before God and be reminded of who he is and what we have in him. He is awesome and great and powerful and we should be still and think about him and you don't mess with God. Don't mess with God. God's a consuming fire. So don't play it safe. Think big. We serve the living God. Don't be afraid of the situation around you. God raises his baby finger and changes the whole geopolitical situation in seconds. Don't picture him small. Don't trust in your own strength. If he withdraws from us, we go down. But thank the Lord, he has promised to never leave us and never forsake us. Christ is not walking out of your life if you know him as a child of God. He is not walking out of your life. Your situation may be dire and tough, but God is not walking out of your life. So, be hopeful, God's people, because we have so much to hope for. Let me prescribe something to you as a doctor of religion right now. If you're discouraged, let me give you some things to do. Psalm 84, Psalm 96, Psalm 98, Psalm 132. And just before we bring up the music team, let me just read one last text who you've just encouraged your hearts from Zephaniah 3. 14, sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, what day? The day of Christ. They will say to Jerusalem, do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Brothers and sisters, we are getting ready 
For that day when Christ fulfills his promise and the epicenter of his creation, his world, is Jerusalem, he will complete his promises through Jerusalem. And we are all going to praise him as the king is coming. And our worship services are kind of a rehearsal in preparation for all that the Lord is about to do. So don't look at what is. Look at what is to be. Our Father and our God, thank you so much for your love for us, for the encouragement of this prophecy, not only to them, but to us, and in particular to us, Lord. Now we see more clearly what you are about to do, and we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for everything that you are doing around us, because we know, Lord, that you are working your redemption purposes. We are wor- you are working history, because it truly is his story. It truly is your story, O oh God. And we realize that you are working salvation history in exactly the, the way you desire and you, you have purposed. I pray, O oh God, that your people will be filled with hope this day and every day for Jesus' sake. Amen. Dearly loved of God, it is impossible to elevate your hope unless you have first come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's the starting point. This was all about teaching of God's people, but this is the starting point to come first of all to Christ, who is your hope, to invite him to forgive you of your sins. For you to have a relationship with him. To know that he died for you and loves you and cares for you. So the first and the starting point for hope is to come to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And he is inviting you right where you are today to receive him. To all receive him, he gives the right to become children of God. Just like that. But for God's people, let's not forget that the promises of God 
are our security for our future. Let's not forget that the power of God allows us to have a clean break from sin. And let's not forget that the presence of God is our strength. So we shout and we rejoice as evidences of the glory of God that inhabits the temple. God has come into his temple. It is the church of Jesus Christ. He's promised to never leave us or forsake us. So hope is not what is. Hope is what is to be. And when the Lord is our hope, we are most hopeful of all because the King is coming. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you so much. We praise you. We love you. We thank you for your word. It encourages us. It lifts up our hearts. We lift up our heads because we know where our help comes from and we know where our hope comes from. It comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And in his name we pray, amen and amen.